This episode is brought to you by Audible. Get your free audiobook download by visiting audiblepodcast.com slash best. Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Countdown, NPR's It's All Politics, The Young Turks, The Daily Show, and Rachel Maddow. Here's your first quote. It's a series of teases from a United States senator. I uh, haven't made up my mind. I want to hear more. Mm. Let's see how the day goes. Now, that senator has been tantalizing Democrat Max Baucus and others for weeks with her will she or won't she vote for health care. Well, this week she finally said yes. For now. Mm. Who? Uh, I'm guessing that's the senator from Maine, Olympia Snow. It is Olympia Snow. Absolutely. Does everybody remember that fall night about a year ago when thousands of people collected in Grand Park here in Chicago to celebrate the election of Olympia Snow as President of the United States? <laughs> well, the most powerful person in America decided to allow health care reform to go forward when she became the only Republican to vote for any form of the bill. The White House says that this single vote makes the bill, quote, bipartisan. <laughs> which is a little like saying you're a world traveler because you saw a slumdog millionaire. <laughs> of course, there was a lot of horse trading. Getting uh, this yes vote from the senator from Maine did not come cheap. For example, the national bird of the United States is now the lobster. <laughs> Do you th- I mean, could, isn't it weird that this woman has so much power? I, mean, whatever, I think like, it's hot. Really? It reminds me of the end of Greece. Like I see her like coming out now, like in leather oh, with pants. With a cigarette, like yeah. standing. Better shape up, cause I need a plan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying. She's singing just... it to Max Bacchus. In my heart, to sit on you. You're the plan that I want. The main. The main equivalent of that, anyway. Yes. So that's what she said to Max Bacchus. She said, tell me about it, stud. <laughs> exactly. And put out the cigarette? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that image is so incredibly disturbing. <laughs> it's better than when Barbara Mikulski does it. That's true. <laughs> It is the most damning report yet about the state of the health care industry, one that confirms health care premiums will continue to rise with or without the Bacchus bill and that the current reforms being proposed do not do enough to contain costs. Our fifth story on the countdown, the study in question was actually commissioned by the health insurance industry lobby. Without intending to, the giant companies that are trying to maintain their stranglehold on health care may have made the most 
most compelling argument yet for a public option. With the Senate Finance Committee set to vote on its bill tomorrow, the health insurance industry is now warning against the incomplete reforms the committee is considering because, among other things, they will leave 20 million people uninsured. And the insurance industry insists, I should say promises, premiums for the rest of us will still go up under the plan. Not that they wouldn't go up without reform, just that they'll go up much more if the bill should become law. The AARP said today that the study is not worth the paper it's printed on. The California Nurses Association, the largest nurses union in the country, responded that our legislators should, quote, stop coddling a useless industry whose sole function is to make enormous profits from the pain and suffering of patients while providing little in return. The spokesman for the Democratic majority on the Senate Finance Committee called the report, quote, a health insurance company hatchet job, plain and simple. The White House adding, quote, this is a distorted and flawed report from the insurance industry and cannot be taken seriously. This so-called analysis appears on the eve of a vote that may eat into the insurance industry's profit. It conveniently ignores critical policies that will lower costs for those who have insurance, expand coverage and provide affordable health insurance options to millions of Americans who are priced out of today's health insurance market or are locked out by unfair insurance company practices. But it's not as if the insurance industry thinks the Bacchus bill cannot be saved. Its solution? Force millions more people to buy its insurance at government subsidy expense more uh, on the cost. There is not a lot that, uh, that really focuses on making coverage uh, more affordable. We, we strongly support the insurance market reform so that everybody has guaranteed access to coverage. There are no more pre-existing condition exclusions. But to make it work, everybody needs to be required to participate. Uh, and we need to have system-wide efforts to make health care coverage more affordable. And so the health care reform debate of 2009 has taken its latest ironic turn. Democrats in the House, the Senate, and the White House began this year's crusade by instantly giving up on universal coverage, giving up on Medicare for all, aspiring instead to cover little more than half of the uninsured. In the Clinton health reform crusade of 1994, universal coverage, coverage for all, was the daily rallying cry. But in the final act of this year's drama, it is oddly only the health insurance industry that is still pushing for universal coverage.
going to go directly to the most important issue before the United States Congress. The majority leader of the U.S. Senate. That is correct. Olivia, Olivia Snow. Snow. Exactly. From the state of Maine. She is sort of a Republican, isn't she, Kat? She's a Republican. I don't know, because I've been hearing an awful lot of things all this week from an awful lot of conservatives and Republicans about how much they don't like Olympia Snow. Well, I've also heard from a lot of Democrats who say that Olympia Snow has given me cover to vote for the uh, Senate finance bill, health care bill. I, I didn't know Ken Rudin's vote was really in question oh, on absolutely. this particular legislation. But now that Olympia's voted this way, I understand. What kind of I, Democrats would say that, Ben Nelson? <laughs> uh, ben Nelson, uh, Blanche Lincoln. Blanche Lincoln. Uh, Blanche Lincoln, and she's up in 2010. And then there are also several other Democrats <laughs> who don't really like this bill that much because, like Jay Rockefeller, the second most well, he hates member of the committee, they think it should have a public option. Maybe they even think it should be single payer. But they surely don't like this particular deal that's been worked out between Max Baucus and, as it turned out, not Chuck Grassley, the guy he tried to play footsie with all these months, but Olympia Snow. Which is remarkable because when the Senate Finance Committee voted down the public option a few weeks ago, both Jay Rockefeller and Chuck Schumer said, not to worry, it's coming back. And then suddenly, lo and behold, we have Olympia Snow saying, sure, I'll vote for it. I'll give Barack Obama the bipartisan cover that he so desperately wanted, but only without the uh, public option. And Max Baucus says, fine. And so the committee goes out and votes 14 to 9 in favor of it. Including Jay Rockefeller. Democrat. We, we assume that he will do so on the floor. They'll attempt on the floor to reintroduce the public option. It will fail, I assume, on the floor with a few Democrats uh, joining all the Republicans. And if it and passes, you lose uh, Olympia Snow, and then there goes the bipartisanship. I, I just don't think it's going to pass. I don't right. think that the public option will be re-added in right. the Senate. However, I do expect it to be in the bill the House votes on, probably in early November. The front page headlines say, you know, and President Obama said that this is a great step forward for a health care overhaul, and that's true, but there is still two completely different health care bills in the Senate, three different bills in the House. Matter of fact, of the five bills, only the Finance Committee one got one Republican vote, Olympia Snow, and that's the one everybody's focusing on. And it's also the one that's probably going to drive the eventual compromise, not just because of Olympia Snow, but she symbolizes the fact that it is the closest to being in some sense or another bipartisan. And while it might not get any Republican votes, it needs to be at least bipartisan in the sense of including both halves of the Democratic Party. Right. In the House, that means the blue dogs. In the Senate, it means some of those people we've already talked about. And that's the ticket to getting some kind of a bill. And in the end, that's all really, I think, the White House wants. And Susan Collins, Olivia Snow's cohort from Maine, uh, also indicated this week that there was a possibility she could vote for that bill as well. Now, she's, to some degree, she's providing a little support for her colleague, the Olympia Snow and Susan Collins. Although may not they're, be, yeah. I mean, they're all right. There's, There's a little a rivalry. rivalry yeah, sure. Yes, but at the same time, I think they have also had each other's back when it came to election time and to moments of high stress and uh, high visibility. And certainly this is such a moment for Olympia Snow. One thing that's different, a lot of people have compared Olympia Snow's heresy to Arnold Inspector. Uh, there's two different things here. First of all, the Republican Party in Pennsylvania is far more socially conservative than the Republican Party in Maine. It's Olymp hard to believe, but true. No, the Pennsylvania Olympia Republican Party is more conservative. Oh, is it, well, certainly on abortion, on a high issues. Roman Catholic population there. But in Maine, Olympia Snow really is the kind of Republican Party, the Bill Cohn, the Margaret Chase Smith, the Susan Collins that Republicans have been electing in the past. John McKernan, who's Olympia Snow's husband, former governor. Everybody's talking about, will there be a revolt by conservatives against Olympia Snow? Not in Maine. Of course, she's not up until 2012, but I suspect you're right, that there will be no revolt, unlike 
what happened to Arlen Specter, who was forced to leave the Republican Party because he was going to get booted out in the primary. So out of step with the conservatives who are more dominant in Pennsylvania. President Obama had, in a sense, a victory here because his bill keeps moving. Still a lot of hurdles, of course, for this particular bill to get over. Uh, Majority Leader Harry Reid is meeting with a small band of desperate Democrats to try to put something together between the two bills in the Senate. And then over on the House side, Nancy Pelosi trying to put together those three bills so they can go to a floor vote next month. put out the healthcare industry. Nonsense, right? Absolute nonsense. In fact, it's such nonsense. This is great. You ready for this? Price Waterhouse Cooper is the company that they hired to do the study. Price Waterhouse Cooper now saying, backpedal, backpedal, backpedal. They're like, well, you know, we kind of distance ourselves from that study. I'm not sure from a, you know, they hired us to do it. Do we stick by it? I don't know. Here's a, a quote that their spokesperson said at PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, America's health insurance plans engaged PricewaterhouseCoopers to prepare a report that focused on four components of the Senate Finance Committee proposal. As the report itself acknowledges, other provisions that are part of health reform proposals were not included in the PricewaterhouseCoopers analysis. In other words, we purposely left things out to make it seem like the premiums were going to go up because that's what the health care insurance lobby paid us to do. This study is garbage. It's not worth the printed, the paper that it's printed on, right? So, you want to see a collection of Republicans uh, arguing for it? What do we tell you? As soon as the study came out, I said the Republicans will take this and pretend it's reality. So, in this clip, you're going to hear from Senator Kyle from Arizona, all Republicans, uh, Crapo from Wisconsin. He's going to be arguing with the director of uh, the Congressional Budget Office, which is going to tell him, no, you're wrong. And then Cornyn from Texas, Bunning from Kentucky, and then Gingry uh, as well. All right, so let's watch. CBO and Milliman and Price Waterhouse all agree that insurance premiums for families in America will go up. Uh, you indicated that although you haven't scored it and don't have specific numbers, that the overall impact of this bill on the cost of health care insurance will be to drive the cost of that insurance up. Is that correct? So that is not a conclusion of our senator. What we've said in a separate letter to Senator Baucus a few weeks ago is that there are a variety of forces working on affecting private insurance premiums and the amount that people would pay for health insurance. And some of the changes in the proposal would tend to push down those premiums. Some would tend to push up those premiums. And because there are so many conflicting forces, we've not been able to assess the net impact on premiums. 
So since there was a little bit of news made over the weekend about the Price Waterhouse study, I wanted to confirm the fact that that study was in fact backed up both by Milliman, another health care consultant, and by the CBO. What a All joke. of whom agree that premiums will go up. As CBO a just of this said it would. But that is not a conclusion of our senator. I would like to uh, go back to some of the discussion about the uh, Price Waterhouse Coopers study that was released and which has been uh, criticized because it was paid for by the insurance industry and it would be a, a cruel uh, a cruel outcome indeed if in fact unintentionally we actually increased uh, their health insurance costs and a recent study suggests that American families will pay more than four hundred or four thousand dollars in nineteen or 2019 because of this bill. It increases the average insurance premium for American families by $4,000, and it still leaves 25 million Americans uninsured. What did I tell you, man? I said in the middle of that clip, I said whores, because that's what they are. They're corporate whores. I mean, they just took that study, which now the guys who conducted the study, Price Waterhouse, I just read you the quote, are saying, yeah, that study was total BS, right? And they're like, oh, what, what, what? It's going to increase your premiums. You see that? The healthcare industry told me to. And then they said, the CBO said it. Except the CBO director, you just saw on the tape, said, uh, no, that's not what we're telling you. That is not our conclusion, right? And then you saw Bunning in there. What a, what a pathetic old fool. You know, in the year 2019, your premiums are going to go up. Well, in 2019, probably they will. Uh, anyway, okay, they're just they're bought and paid, man. I mean, if you're a conservative and you're relying these, on these Republicans to fight for you and not the corporate interests to fight for the average American, <laughs> I feel bad for you, man. They don't give a rat's ass about you. All they care about is the guys who are paying them. I mean, that was a perfect example of how bought and sold they are. Audible is supporting this episode, which I love because I've been using Audible for years. They have tens of thousands of titles, including audiobooks, newspapers, magazines, radio, TV, and premium podcasts. For this audience, I recommend they have the heavy hitters, My Life by Bill Clinton, The Audacity of Hope by Barack Obama, but my personal favorites are like Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them, Al Franken's latest book before he became a senator, and America the Audiobook, put together by the writers of The Daily Show. As a listener of this show, you can get a free audiobook to try out this service by visiting audiblepodcast.com slash best. You have to go to that special URL. That's how they know that I sent you and that you deserve a free audiobook. Audiblepodcast.com slash best. I do not want to yell. I feel like screaming, but everybody is screaming. Everybody is screaming that this is about rights or freedom or socialism or the president or the future or the past or a political failure or a political success. We have all been screaming. I have been screaming and we have all been screaming because we do not want to face, we cannot face what is at the heart of all of this, what is the unspoken essence of every moment of this debate. What about which we are truly driven to such intense, ineffable, inchoate emotions? Because ultimately, in screaming about health care reform, pro or con, we are screaming about death. This ultimately is about death.
about preventing it, about fighting it, about resisting it, about grabbing hold of everything and anything to forestall it and postpone it, even though we know that the force will overcome us all, always will, always has. Healthcare is at its core about improving the odds of life in its struggle against death, of extending that game which we will all lose, each and every one of us, unto eternity, extending it another year or month or second. This is the primary directive of life, the essence of our will as human beings, all perhaps that is measurable of our souls, the will to live. And when we go to a doctor's office or a hospital or a storefront clinic in a ghetto, we are expressing this fundamental cry of humanity. I want to live. I want my child to live. I want my wife to live. I want my father to live. I want my neighbor to live. I want that stranger I do not know and never will know to live. This is elemental stuff, our atoms in action, our survival mode in charge. Tamper with this and you are tampering with us. And so we yell and scream and try to put it all in a political context or expand it to some great issue of societal freedom or dress it up in something that would be otherwise farcical like a death panel. But this issue needs no expansion and no dressing up. The Democrats need draw no line in the sand and the Republicans need calculate no seats to be gained and the Blue Dogs need anticipate no campaign contributions lost. This issue is big enough as it is. This is already life and death. Of all the politicians of the previous century, none fought harder to prevent an administration that had promised to involve itself in health care from ever gaining power than did England's Winston Churchill. He equated his opponents, the party that sought to introduce the national health, to the Gestapo of the Germans that he and we had just beaten, just as those opposing reform now have invoked Nazis as frequently and as falsely as if they were invoking zombies. Churchill cost himself the election because he did not realize he was overplaying an issue that people were already damned serious about. Irony this, because a decade earlier Churchill had made the greatest argument ever for government intervention in health care, only he did not realize it. He was debating in Parliament the notion that the British government could not increase expenditures on military defense unless the voters specifically authorized it. Just as today's opponents of reform are now claiming they speak for the voters of today, even though those voters spoke for themselves 11 months ago. Churchill's argument was this, quote, I have heard it said that the government had no mandate. Such a doctrine is wholly inadmissible. The responsibility for the public safety is absolute and requires no mandate. And there is the essence of what this is. What on the eternal list of priorities precedes health? What more obvious role could government have than the defense of the life of each citizen? We cannot stop every germ that seeks to harm us any more than we can stop every person who seeks to harm us. But we can try, damn it. And government's essential role in that effort, facilitate it, reduce its cost, broaden its availability, improve my health and yours, seems ultimately self-explanatory. We want to live. What is government for if not to help us do so? Indeed, Mr. Churchill, the responsibility for the public safety is absolute and requires no mandate. And yet today at this hour, somebody somewhere in this country is arguing against or protesting against or yelling against health care reform 
because the subject is really life and death and they're scared and they've been scared and they've been misled by the overly simple words of one side and misinformed by the overly complex words of the other side and that one person at least that one person who is tonight so scared that somehow sickness and pain and death will come sooner to them because of reform they do not understand that one person if his or her argument is successful and reform is again quashed that one person arguing against health care reform will die sooner because they argued against health care reform just as you and i have largely failed to understand the terror the fear of death that underlies this debate in the minds of so many, the leadership of the reform effort has also failed to understand it and failed to lead, not just in practical terms, but in rhetorical ones. If you did not know what something called the public option was, you might instinctively oppose it. Option? My health care is now optional? Doesn't that mean it can go away somehow? Doesn't that mean that when I need it, it won't be there? Doesn't that mean somebody's trying to take it away from me? And this insurance that might go away is public? I'm giving control to the government somehow? No private, just public? And so in seconds, with mental reflexes as acute and natural as any mechanism of fight or flight, something that will expand health care and reduce its cost, something that will help fight death and pain, becomes misunderstood as exactly the opposite. You can blame the one doing the misunderstanding all you want, but the essence of communication is reducing the chance of misunderstanding. And the term, the public option, has been as useless and as full of holes and as self-defeating as has been the term global warming. It is political speak. It is legalese. It is designed not for the recipient, but for the speaker. It is the ego of the informed strutting down the street and saying, look at me, I talk smart. Just as global warming is really bad climate change, the public option is, in broad essence, Medicare for everybody. Frame it that way, sell it that way, and suddenly it doesn't sound like a threat, turning the seemingly solid insurance which people have now, for better or worse, into something optional, and turning anything private into everything public. Once you said Medicare for everybody, there would be just as much to explain. If you were under 65, you'd be paying for it. You wouldn't have to buy it. You wouldn't have to change from whatever you have now. There are just as many caveats. Still, the intent of all this would be clearer. Much of the criticism of health care reform is coming from those who have or are about to get Medicare. And in confusion, in fear, in the kind of indescribable realization that we are far closer to the end than we are to the beginning, they are suddenly mortally afraid that health care reform will take it away from them. Medicare for everybody might not be literally true, but instead of terrifying, it would be reassuring. And the explanations and the caveats would be listened to and not shouted down as anger and fear. Fear, remember, of death. Fear that swells up inside. This rhetorical ship, of course, has sailed, and frankly, those leading the effort to reform health care have been so outflanked, out-argued, out-terrorized by its opponents that their reflexes seem shot. They are, to use Mr. Lincoln's words about General Rosecrans, frozen in place like a duck hit on the head. And yet even from the most insurrectionary of the infamous town halls of August, there came report after report of proponents of health care reform responding to the Tea Partyists and the genuinely confused in voices calm with genuine empathy and honest inquiry by asking, what are you afraid of? What do you think we can do to improve health care? Setting aside the professional protesters, the shameless mercenaries of this equation, the LaRouche bags and the hired guns, 
The results were uniform and productive dialogue, conversation, admission of fear, admission that we are indeed talking about pain and sickness and life and death, admission that we are seeking the same things and that this should not be left to the politicians who almost to a man reek of the corruption of campaign contributions from the very monopolies they are supposedly trying to control. And something else would come up, something that you never hear included in the debate over reform, in the debate about insurance and bankruptcy, and even in the debate over the remorseless rapaciousness of companies that are forever increasing premiums and deductibles while reducing what they give back to the person who is sick. What you never hear about is the person who is sick. Have you ever stayed overnight in a hospital? All data suggests that in a given year, only about one in ten of us do. It, it's not a universal experience. Could you sleep in a hospital? With constant noise, with sharing a room with strangers, perhaps, with contemplating mortality, and more immediately, the fog of germs in the place, with staph infections and MRSA, and nursing staffs cut to the minimum, and overworked doctors, and medical record keeping so primitive it might as well be done on blackboards. And the bills? What about the person who is sick and the bills? How are they supposed to get better while they are sitting there inside a giant cash register? How do you heal? How do you kill a cancer when the meeting, meter is running so loudly you can hear it? When a system of health care has been so refined, so perfected as to find a way to charge for almost everything and to reimburse for almost nothing, how does the person who is sick not worry always, always about where he is going to get the money? And how is somebody worrying always about where he's going to get the money supposed to also get better? I'm sick with wanting, and it's evil and it's daunting. Now I let everything I cherish lay the waste. I am lost in grief this time. It's definitely me. I point fingers, but there's no one there to blame. I need for something, no, let me break it down again. I need for something, but not more medicine. I'm sick of wanting, and it's easy. Tonight, of course, the big story continues to be health care reform. As the effort comes down to the wire, no side, be it the Democrats, Republicans, or the health insurance industry itself, can afford a misstep. A Colorado couple initially denied health insurance for their four-month-old son because he was too fat. <laughs> Go on. Four-month-old Alex Lang, 17 pounds, and he falls into the 99th percentile for height and weight for his age. Underwriters for Rocky Mountain Health Plan said it was industry standard to deny coverage for patients above the 95th percentile, including infants. He's a baby. <laughs> well, what's he supposed to do, work out more? <laughs> oh, yeah, he's so fat, he can't even walk. I mean, besides, look at him. Look at the baby. He's not even that big. You want to see a fat baby? That's a fat baby. I don't want to see uh, this guy here as a big eater, but apparently he started out as triplets. 
But this baby, come on! According to reports, he's breastfed. So unless his mom's teats are named Ben and Jerry, what's he supposed to do? He's adorable. He's not even that fat. He's, he's just a good... Oh. In, in his defense, that was a very old box that was over there. Fortunately, Rocky Mountain Health wound up reversing its decision. I wonder why they do that. Alex's father, a local TV news anchor, put his story on the air. Oh, public shame. If only all of America's uninsured were sired by TV news anchors. Good thing the company reversed it, though. Wouldn't want old Apple Cheeks Johnson here to become the Democrats' Joe the Plumber. Starts appearing with party leaders. The media digs in, finds a dark past. Alex the baby tries to explain his side of the story, but the damage is done. The next thing you know, the phone stops ringing, and before you know it, it's 20 years later, and he's outside Sky Bar. He's outside Sky Bar going, don't you know who you're with? I was Alex the baby. But nobody cares, because guess what? At this point, his body mass index in the normal range. <laughs> but what about the fate of the great health care reform effort? Last time we checked, the Senate Finance Committee was rejecting both Jay Rockefeller's and Chuck Schumer's public option health care reform bills. Well, now it was Montana Democrat Max Baucus's turn. For months, he's been working feverishly to draft a bill that would garner bipartisan support. And for that goal, he sacrificed the public option, the employer mandate, strong penalties for people who fail to buy insurance, even left 17 million eligible people uninsured. He renamed Max Baucus Jr. Charles B. Grassley III. All, all that was left, that last one was fake. The first three were real. Now, I know, I know comedy typically comes in threes. He threw that fourth one in there because we like to f with the structure. was left was to sit back and count the Republican votes. I do deliver these remarks with a heavy heart because uh, what could have been a strong bipartisan vote is now ending as another divided vote. The bill before us today that we'll be voting on is clearly not the answer. The bill we have before us is not one that I can support. Indeed, I think in some ways it makes things worse. I don't get it. Buck is pussied out on everything. <laughs> I chugged the vodka, I kept the olive in my ass for an hour, you shaved all my body hair, what's it take to become an alpha beta? <laughs> and that's when she walked in. The blazer said staunch Republican, but the skirt hinted she might be bipartisan curious. <laughs> Olympia Snow, Republican from Maine. The fate of our health care system rests in your briny claws. <laughs> Which way is it going to be? It's really akin to the Titanic and turning the Titanic around before it hits an iceberg. But the difference is that the, chairman, the captain did not know there was an iceberg, but we do. <laughs> okay. So, Democrats, depending on what the iceberg represents, you may have her vote. Because I share my Republican colleague's trepidation. Or maybe you don't. <laughs> Suspense is killing me. My vote today is my vote today. It doesn't forecast what my vote will be tomorrow. 
as Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said. All right, now you're just milking it. <laughs> Come on, Snow! But when history calls, history calls. That is what my vote to report this bill out of committee here today represents. <gasps> they did it! They got the bill out of committee so it can move on to the Senate floor to be merged with a different Senate bill painstakingly reconciled with then the House bill and debated perhaps for months longer. USA! 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 Lone Republican Olympia Snow of Maine voting aye. Snow's support was historic. She reaffirmed her place as a power player on Capitol Hill. Democrats will certainly uh, describe a Republican Senator Olympia Snow as a profile in courage. I want to particularly thank Senator Olympia Snow for both the political courage and the seriousness of purpose that she's demonstrated throughout this process. Oh my God, it's like if Joan of Arc and Rosa Parks had a baby. <laughs> and then that baby won the Super Bowl. <laughs> Olympia Snow is our greatest American hero. Hey, Sully, you're out. <laughs> Snow's in. She voted against her party. Without the courage of Olympia Snow, this never would have gotten out of committee. They have passed the Bacchus health care bill 14 to 9. So, uh, I'm sorry there? <laughs> so her vote made it 14 to 9 instead of 13 to 10? They didn't even need her vote? Well, good thing they gutted the whole f***ing bill. You know what? Get out of here, Snow. Sully, you're back in. Sorry about that. you, Sully. <laughs> I'll fly with you anywhere. <laughs> so the Finance Committee finally voted on the bill that's been taking up their time for months. Of course, they got a lot more on their agenda. What other important business did they tend to that committee day? Happy birthday to you. Happy you. birthday, dear Maria. We are alone. so far made it through four and today we learned that the fifth one the last one the most conservative one by far will finally vote on tuesday the top democrat in the senate harry reid announcing that vote and firing a warning shot today against opponents of reform there are those who consider this a zero-sum game and will only declare victory if president obama concedes defeat 
this country has no place for those who wish for its leaders to fail. The top Republican in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, returned fire immediately. Listening to the proponents of these plans, you get the sense they're more concerned about their legacies than what the American people actually want. Well, here's an idea. How about asking the American people what they want instead? Important moment there. How about asking the American people what they want instead? It's the Republican leader tipping his hand that he thinks the polls are with the Republicans, that he thinks the American people just don't want health reform and that they support the Republicans in blocking it. Why would Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans believe that? One possible explanation is that they've been pouring through lots and lots of polling on the issue of health care. But if that were the case, frankly, the polls, broadly speaking, are not really obviously on the Republican side, the polls are pretty favorable to health reform. So Mr. McConnell would therefore be unlikely to bust out with, hey, ask the American people what they want as a Republican talking point. An alternative explanation is that the Republican leadership may have been watching a lot of Fox News lately. The Fox News Channel released a new poll on health reform this week, along with opinion dynamics. The poll offered some pretty dire numbers for those who are in favor of reform. According to Fox's numbers, only 33% of Americans favor health reform legislation, and overwhelming 53% oppose it. It's a 20, 20, 20 point gap. Wow. So if you're Mitch McConnell watching Fox, of course, ask the American people what they want. They don't want reform. Here's the problem. As first noticed and reported by polling savant Nick, uh, Nate Silver at 538.com, before any respondents in Fox's poll were asked about health reform, they were first asked questions like this. Do you think President Obama apologizes too much to the rest of the world for past U.S. policies? Or do you think Barack Obama's travel and speaking schedule makes him look more like he's a candidate on the campaign trail or more like he's the president of the United States? How about this one? Would you rather cut spending now so future generations don't have to pay or keep spending at current levels and let future generations pay. Those were the warm-up questions that Fox's poll asked, priming their respondents for the question about health reform. And perhaps unsurprisingly, health reform fared quite poorly compared to other recent, more normal polls. That flawed figure was treated as news by Fox all day. And, and lots of conservatives and Republicans watch Fox News all day. And perhaps that explains why Republicans' ideas about what the country thinks about health reform are somewhat out of keeping with what the country mostly really does think about health reform. If the types of questions that appeared on that Fox poll before the health care question sounded a little familiar to you, it's because we have seen this sort of thing before. The Republican National Committee this summer disguised a fundraising appeal as a poll, asking their potential donors if they were concerned that health reform was a secret plot to base health care on voter registration so Republicans could all be denied care. We also saw sex scandal embattled Republican Senator, Senator David Vitter put out a fundraising appeal disguised as a poll recently. He asked his potential donors, quote, the Obama plan includes free coverage for an estimated 12 million illegal aliens in the United States. Do you support this? 
You wouldn't treat data gleaned from questions like that as news, would you? It's campaigning. It's questioning that is not designed to elicit an opinion. It's designed to shape your opinion. Normal polling isn't like that. When normal news organizations do polling on an issue like health reform, the types of questions that precede the do you want health reform or not question would be stuff like, like this one from a recent CNN poll. Do you think the economy is in a recession or not? Or this one from an NBC poll. Do you think the country is headed in the right direction or the wrong direction? Or this one from an ABC poll. Which party do you trust to do a better job coping with the nation's major problems? That's what normal polling looks like. And then there's Fox. Do you think President Obama apologizes too much to the rest of the world for past US policies? One of these things is not like the other, okay? It's fine if Fox wants to do this. Honestly, knock yourself out. It is probably somewhat effective as a campaign tactic against health reform. But the sort of information that you get from poll respondents after you have pushed them like this should probably not be taken as a real data point about where Americans actually stand on reform. Doing this sort of polling makes good business sense for Fox News, I imagine. They get to report to their conservative audience exactly what that audience wants to hear. That keeps the audience happy. That keeps them tuned in. I'm sure it is great for ratings. Fox's ratings, frankly, are through the roof. I totally understand why they would want to do something like this. The flawed data being broadcast by Fox is probably also very exciting for elected Republicans to hear. But because it is made to look like it is genuine news, that it is made to look like it is real information, it's possible that it is messing Republicans up. It is giving them bad information with which to make strategic policy decisions. Businessmen and women who are Republicans, like the people who run Fox News, may benefit from this sort of thing because it's probably a good business move for the Fox News channel. But elected Republicans in Congress who are taking this stuff as if it's real, as if it's actual news, and allowing it to inform their policy positions, may be being grossly ill-served by it. The body like soft served, dripping down in the deep sun. I tried to shoot a thought, but the thought sunk. Nothing to do but scratch words in the dirt and watch the water roll down. Phantom kisses buzzing like the insects. Beads of sweat dripping down on the red shack. My candy land melted down to syrup while I watched the water roll down. who the two women were, yet they are indelibly burned into my memory now. They stood outside on a crisp New York morning last week, middle-aged, short, looking more than a little weary. They were wearing lab coats, and they were leaning against what those coats told me was their place of employment, the Mortimer B. Zuckerman Research Center at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. The women in the cancer researchers' lab coats were smoking cigarettes. 
I've seen a lot of startling things in my more than 40 days and 40 nights alongside my ailing father inside this nation's fractured health care system, but nothing seemed to me to better symbolize the futility, the ram-your-head-against-a-wall futility of this gigantic medical entity that we have created that seems to have not only broken free from human control, but which has to some great measure enslaved us. 23 stories tall, built partly with a $100 million gift from the publisher of the New York Daily News and U.S. News Magazine, and two of the cancer researchers are standing in front smoking. That isn't the only picture that haunts my dreams. A man walking out of another hospital, casual, purposeful, in control, the red stitches on the left side of his shaved head, outlining a space as big as a large potato and at least an inch higher than the rest of his skull. I don't know if he was getting better or he's getting worse. I don't know if he had just gotten good news or bad. I don't know if tonight he's healthy or he's dead. Months ago, I got in line at a drugstore here. A woman ahead of me, obviously a familiar figure to the young pharmacist behind the counter, trying with mixed success to take in the gentle explanation. You've maxed out your prescriptions on that insurance, the professional said slowly. I can't give it to you. Customer shook her head in resignation. It was like the medieval courts of chancery, where if you were poor, you could take your lawsuit against the rich or the government and hope that when they picked the handful of cases to be heard that year, they'd pick somehow yours. If they didn't, you could try again next year, or in some cases every year, for 20 next years. The woman who needed the prescription spoke even more slowly than the pharmacist just had. She had almost no hope in her voice. Try the Cigna, please. Another drugstore late at night, and the pharmacist there was a friend of mine. You have to do something about this, he said loudly as he handed me my refill. Then he reached for somebody else's prescription. You see this? Antifungal cream. I just filled this. You know what this costs wholesale? $4. You know what I have to sell it for? $263. I sell it for less, and I get fired, and maybe we lose our license. And then this. Last Saturday, I leave my father 24 hours after serious surgery that probably saved his life, serious enough that he was still under sedation, and it would be another 24 hours before he knew where he was or who I was. And yet I knew he was okay, because I'd gotten him the best care in the world. Literally, his surgeon is considered one of the top five guys in his field alive today. And even I can tell he absolutely nailed the operation. And I know that after my father was to wake up when post-operative fluids would get into his lungs and he had trouble breathing and he had to inhale after every word, they would give him a drug called Lasix that would start to drain the fluids and within five minutes he'd be breathing easier and within 15 it would be like nothing was ever wrong. And that this was just one of 20 drugs they can use on him, not just to make him better long term, but just as importantly and twice as imperatively to stop his pain short term. And I marvel that we have come so far that you can barely take care of your life like he would admit he hasn't for 80 years. You can even be as dumb as those two women outside the cancer research center smoking away. And there's still a kaleidoscope of drugs and therapies and nurses and diagnosticians and psychiatrists and x-ray techs and surgeons. And all of them are capable of undoing the pain and curing the sickness and forestalling death. As I walked down the hallway from my dad's room, I allowed myself a brief moment of selfishness. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I'm happy that I can spend whatever it takes to help my dad get better, to keep him around. But maybe I can atone for that selfishness by making this case tonight to you, to whoever sees this, that we have to make these wonders of life and health and peace of mind and the control of pain available to everybody. And this is boiling in my brain that day, and I take the shortcut out to the street, through the emergency room, and that's when I hear my name called. And it's a man roughly my age, and he looks worried to death and really familiar. 
I haven't seen him in 32 years. He was the nephew of the two brothers from Brooklyn who used to run the baseball card shows when we were both kids. And his uncles were the businessmen, but he, like me, we were the kids collecting mostly for the fun of it. And it's amazing to see him again, joyous almost, just for the sake of the continuity that the accident of us running into each other provides to us both. And he asks what I'm doing there, and I tell him, and he smiles, because my father used to go to those card shows with me. And Mike remembers him. Then I ask Mike why he's there. My daughter's in ICU, he says. Three weeks now, and the worried look returns to his face. Lyme disease. It's one thing, they knock that down, then it's another. There's a brief pause. Tomorrow I will have to sell my farm. Did you know I had a farm? I don't have to ask him why. He then goes the next step. Hey, you want to buy my card collection? I've got some great stuff. We must reform a system that lets my father get better care than yours does, or better care than Mike's daughter's does, because of the accident of life that I make more money than he does, or my checkbook could hold out longer than his does, or yours does, as the bills come endlessly like some evil version of the enchanted water buckets from Fantasia. The resources exist for your father and mine to get the same treatment, to have the same chance and to both not have to lie there worried about whether or not they can afford to live. Afford to live! Are we at that point? Are we so heartless that we let the rich live and the poor die and everybody in between become racked with fear? Fear not of disease but of deductibles? Right now, right now somebody's father is dying because they don't have that dollar to spend. And the means by which the playing field is leveled and the costs that are just as inflated to me as they are to you are reduced and the money that I then don't have to spend anymore on saving my father can go instead to saving your father. That's called health care reform. Death is the issue. How can we not be united against death? I want my government helping my father to fight death. I want my government to spend taxpayer money to help my father fight to live. And I want my government to spend taxpayer money to help your father fight to live. I want it to spend my money first on fighting death. Not on war, not on banks, not on high-speed rail. Spend our money. Spend my money first on the chance to live. And we must be unanimous in this, not to achieve some political triumph for one side against the other, but to save the man or the woman or the child who will be dead by morning in this country, in this century, on our watch, because we are not spending that money tonight. I will not settle for a compromise bill. And I will extend my hand to those who are scared of the inevitability of death, but who've been told they are scared of reform, those who've been exploited by the others, paid or forced to defend the status quo. We must recognize the enemy here. It's an enemy capable of perverting reform meant for you and me into its own ATM that mandates only that more of us become the slaves to the insurance companies, the moneyed interests that have bled their customers white and used their customers' money to buy the system, to buy the politicians, to buy the press. It cannot now even be checked by the government. Ordinarily, the solution would be obvious. We would have to do it for the government. We would have to bring the insurance companies to their knees to organize, to pick a date, to say enough, to at a given hour, on a given day, stop paying the premiums. An insurance strike. 
But the insurance company's stranglehold on us is so complete right now that lives would be risked. Lives would be lost by the very act of protest. What parent could risk the cancellation of their child's insurance? What adult could risk giving his insurer the chance to claim that everything wrong with him on the day of an insurance strike was now suddenly a pre-existing condition? Even as the payouts move inexorably downwards to being less than what you have paid in over the years, we are such serfs to the insurance companies that just to invoke the true spirit of the founding of this nation is to give them more power, not less. So I propose tonight one act with two purposes. I propose we, all of us, embrace the selfless individuals at the National Association of Free Clinics. You know them. They conducted the mass health care free clinic in Houston that served 1,500 people. I want a health care free clinic every week in the principal cities of the states of the six senators key to defeating a filibuster against health care reform in the Senate. I want Senators Lincoln and Pryor to see what health care poverty is really like in Little Rock. I want Senator Baucus to see it in Butte. I want Senator Ben Nelson to see it in Lincoln. I want Senator Landro to see it in Baton Rouge. I want Senator Reed to see it in Las Vegas. I'll donate. How much will you donate? We enable thousands of our neighbors to have just a portion of the bounty of good health. And we make a statement to the politicians, forgive me, William Jennings Bryan, you shall not press down upon the brow of America this crown of insurance. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of blue. We think these events will be firmed up presently. You'll be able to link from our website. Trust me, I will remind you. Because in one party, in one demographic, in one protest movement, we are all brothers and sisters. We are united in membership in the party that insists that every chance at life be afforded to every American seeking that chance. We are united in membership in the party that insists on the right of everyone to the startling transcendent blessings of the technological advance of medical science. We are united in membership in the party that is for life, that is against death, that is for lower premiums, that is against higher deductibles, that is for the peace of mind that can be provided only by the elimination of the fear that cost will decide whether we live or we die. Because that's the point, isn't it? It is hard enough to recover, to fight past pain, and to stave off death if just for a season or a week or a day. It is so hard that eventually, for you, for me, for this president, for these blue dogs, for these protesters, it is so hard to recover that for all of us there will come a time when we will not recover. So why are we making it harder? Thanks for listening, everybody. So, as has been mentioned on the show before, I've you know the past few months, I've actually been able you know totally thanks to the members and a tiny bit from advertising, I've been able to scrape together enough to consider the podcast a, a little bit of a part-time job. So, my you know I have a real job, of course, that I go to, and my hours were cut a while back, and so now I'm doing half time, you know, half and half, and so I just wanted to tell this story from last week which is that I actually agreed 
to to change up my hours a little bit. So I, I worked a full week at the office last week. And then in exchange, I would just make up for it this week by not working at all. Totally makes sense. You know, I, I thought I had, uh, you know, the podcast was, you know, running smooth and I, I had time to spare. And I thought, well, I'll have to work some extra hours at night, but I'll make up for it next week. It'll be no big deal. And of course, as it turned out, you know, things went okay. I had to work long hours every day uh, to make sure everything was running smooth and, and the podcast was getting out on time. But what I didn't count on was just to what degree everything else would fall by the wayside. So, you know, like, for instance, if you've written me an email in the past week and a half or two, uh, it's a practical guarantee you haven't heard back from me. Email totally went by the wayside. Couldn't keep up with it. Any updates to the website that needed to be made? Haven't been made yet. My, my, my to-do list is just growing and growing so the idea is that i'll be catching up on all that this week and of course i will but now just this last weekend is when i realized something had fallen by the wayside that i really shouldn't have let fall by the wayside which was spell check so this the episode that just went out it was called the democracy for sale just came out you know a few days ago uh, over the, this past weekend but at least a few hundred people downloaded it within the first uh, couple hours from when i posted it with the horribly, obviously misspelled name of, I don't know, like, Decomcracy for sale. And, oh boy, it was just embarrassing. It nearly gave me a heart attack when I, when I saw it uh, just a couple hours after I'd posted it. And I saw it and uh, had a minor freak out. So I was able to fix the title of it. But then, you know, embarrassingly enough, I, I couldn't go in and pull out the, it just would have been so much work to go in and, and recreate a brand new file where the show notes that's actually embedded in the file has the title spelled correctly. So a few people got the episode where, you know, in iTunes, it was just misspelled right there on the show line. But actually for everyone, the show notes are still misspelled and I was just embarrassed by that. And, you know, thought I would explain why that happened uh, so you don't think too much less of me so now of course just real quick i want to thank a couple of members sarah s signed up back on august 14th and carrie k signed up on september 10th so of course a huge thanks to both of these members and all of the members who help keep the show going as it is now the, you know this past week gives a great example of how the show would just deteriorate along with my mental stability if I didn't have the members to, to help support me in the show and keep me going so that I can dedicate as much time to the show as it deserves. And then, of course, in return, they get not only that warm, fuzzy feeling, but also access to the members-only raw feed, where they get all the clips that end up in the show and a bunch of stuff that doesn't make the final cut, so it ends up being bonus material. And a lot of that stuff is uh, put out in its original video format, like the Young Turks, stuff from MSNBC, and so on. So that is it for today. Stay connected with the show on Twitter and Facebook, which is more useful to do than ever. I post a lot of the great stuff I find during my research to those two locations. You can also sign up for our email newsletter. You can hugely support the show just by telling five friends about it, and they'll thank you for it anyways, and also leaving reviews in iTunes. The show's available on your smartphone without syncing to a computer at stitcher.com and visit the show notes on the blog where you'll find links to all the sources used and all the music 
put in this episode. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to the members and donors from bestoftheleft.com. Yeah.